morning, and we're continuing this series in looking at our emotions and how the gospel speaks to us of the reign of Jesus, even in the recesses of our heart, even in those hidden places. And we've talked about a few, but today we're going to be talking about the emotion or the feeling of shame. And so Psalm 25 helps point us to that direction. Now, if you're, if you're used to this, the normal kind of way that we teach is we go through certain scriptures verse by verse, I guess you'd say, or section by section, and let sort of the argument and logic of the text flow. But this morning we'll be looking from Psalm 25 and just picking, picking out sort of generally how David approaches this and learn the ways that we can as well. So Psalm chapter uh, 25. But before we do that... Uh, John, if you'd flip back there, we want to take a second to kind of practice uh, what we're wanting to learn, and that is to, to just be aware of our emotions. Again, if some of you are like me, uh, when I begin to learn these things, if somebody was to ask me how I felt, and you, I would say one or two answers usually, nothing, or I don't know, or I would say I feel everything. And, and so just to pick on myself, if that's where you're at, well, that's where I was. But, but that just shows we've got some work to do. To be aware of particularly what we're feeling in any given moment and, and know that it's really not all or nothing. And sometimes when it is all, that, that's just another sort of red flag that, that we need to do some work. So right now, if you'd look at these and just uh, be aware to yourself and before the Lord, what are you feeling right now? Could be one or many or all. Thank you for doing that. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship or the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. 
Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us wherever we are, whatever we're going through, and even when we don't know where we are or what we're going through. Thank you, God, that we know that you know us, you love us, and you've welcomed us to your table through Jesus. And we pray now, God, you would help us to understand a little bit more about this subject of shame and what you have to say to it so that Jesus and not it rules in our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, some of you have probably heard me share in here, and I'm not going to repeat it, kind of my basketball exclusion shame story when I was in kindergarten and did, got kind of excluded from playing. But if you haven't heard that, I'm not going to bore you with that. I want to fast forward a little bit to where I had my chance to really redeem myself. And so I've, I've made it beyond, you know, not getting included to actually getting to be on a team because, you know, they couldn't force me from not being on a rec league team. And I, I, got, I remember this so clearly, and, and, you, and just we've said this already, if you have certain memories that are clear, it's probably like good to pay attention to those because there's a lot of things we don't remember, and so we need to ask ourselves, why do I remember what I remember? And here's, this is what I remember, not to make you guys feel uncomfortable. I remember being in a game, the rebound, me getting the rebound, which was amazing, me going up strong and scoring and just running down the court, just feeling this pride, this sense of redemption. You know, I finally made it. And then I, I, there's, there's nobody else cheering, though. I scored for the other team. <laughs> and in that moment, I could just imagine, I don't, this didn't happen. But I could just imagine probably my parents probably being like, Who, whose kid is that? <laughs> that didn't happen. But that's kind of how I would imagine it. And I remember it, it kind of being funny to people. So it wasn't like anybody was kind of mean, but it was funny. And so in this, this epic opportunity that I thought I had redeemed myself from the shame of my exclusion is I'd kindly only dug a pit even deeper to believe that I just need to hide. And so I don't know when it started, but uh, I don't think that I merely have bad posture. But if you've noticed, a lot of times I'll walk around, and I'm, this isn't a self-pity session. Anyway, I'm just being real. Of like this head held down sort of weird thing. I remember later in life, and we won't go there, where I actually got a lot better at basketball and, and overworked that and made that into an idol, which will be another sermon for another day. It's like even then when I was on the court, uh, people would say, like, why are you hunched over? Why are you bent over? And I even got the nickname in high school of being Wild Turtle. That was my nickname. And part of that was because not only in my energy I brought to the court, uh, the wild part, but then the, the juxtaposition of this kind of long, elongated neck that's always going around like this. And a part of that, though, is this sense that came in my life that I needed to hide. This, this feeling that, like, I really never belonged. Like, no matter how good I got, no matter what steps that I took, it was like, you know, you're always going to kind of be on the outside only to the extent that you can perform and get other people to like and approve of you. So fast forward into my life, and, and, and 
why, why couldn't my wife on a particular Tuesday night remind me to take out the garbage without it being an existential crisis of my husbandry, fatherhood, manhood, and meaning? I mean, why couldn't you just ask somebody, remind somebody to take out the garbage? Was it because, like we like to so flippantly throw this phrase around, because I'm sensitive? Well, yeah, newsflash, if you know me, I am. But what a demeaning, dismissive, lazy description of something that runs so deep. I mean, how do you like it when you're hurting and somebody looks at you and says, you're just being too sensitive? Again, that's true. We are. But there's a deeper question. Why does matters of doing lead to such crises of being? And it can go the other way, too. We can get really sensitive about somebody else not doing something we think they should do. So we have to ask ourselves, why does what they do or not do affect so much about how you feel about who you are? Why so sensitive? They didn't do what you thought they should do, and now some, for some reason that threatens your sense of identity? The word for this crisis of where doing all of a sudden goes deep into how we feel about our being, the word behind this is shame. And none of us are exceptions to it, especially those of us who are the people who want everybody else to lighten up. Probably you may be the one that has the shame that runs so deep because you, you just can't handle it. Our neighborhood here and our friends are surrounded with people who are so tough, who are always trying to prove themselves, who've got to show no weakness and no vulnerability because the mindset is if you show any bit of weakness, people will take advantage of that. And just like what happened to you at some point in your life, you will be, you will be abused or you will be abandoned. For some of you, let someone talk about your parenting or about your kids' performance. And it's not about anything that's been done or undone. All of a sudden now it's about, well, who am I? Stop being so sensitive. For some of you, if it's a talk about your lack of efficiency, how you don't get things done or you're lazy or something in that. And it's not about doing now, it's about being. Stop being so sensitive. Others of you, it's your lack of voice, your lack of knowledge, your lack of power, your lack of influence, the lack of place in your life. For some, it's your age. Others, it's your appearance. For some, it's your activities. For others, it's your exercise. For all of us, it's our past, our present, and our future. And there's buttons that get pressed that are comments about what we do or don't do or what others do or don't do. And it leads back to this deep sense of not being sure of who we really are. So as we begin thinking about this this morning, what are your shame buttons? What are those places that if people question your doing, you have this crisis of being? What are those places that if others don't do, you have this crisis of being? Where does the mention of what you've done or not done or what's been done to you or not done for you cause you to question if you really matter at all?
whether you're lovable, knowable, and acceptable. Dealing with shame is nothing new. Preached on this before, I did last Christmas, and we looked at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at Psalm 25. It's a big subject. Lots of great work out there, better than probably what I'll share with you, so go study it on your own. But today we're going to look at Psalm 25, where David is asking God to protect him from shame. Protect him from living a life that ends with him being embarrassed, exposed as someone who trusted in the wrong thing, or exposed as someone who was the wrong thing. And this gets at why shame is sometimes connected to real guilt, but it's distinct. So guilt is about what you've done or not done. But shame, again, is about who you are. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. And that is a very powerful logic that operates in our lives. And the enemy wants to take that and destroy us, send us into hiding, and leave us utterly alone. But if we will listen, the Spirit of God is here, is in you, inspired this Word to lead us to a different place. So that what we do or what's been done to us does not lead to us not knowing who we are. And leaving us more alone in our self-prophesying, self-justifying, vicious cycles of existence. The only way out is we've got to learn to humble ourselves, to come out of hiding, the hiding of shame into the hope of the Savior. Well, one, one way that we do this, and the first way we want to underline from Psalm 25, is we've got to humble ourselves to acknowledge shame's presence in our life. It's time to repent from being the I'm just too sensitive or you're just too sensitive people. It's time to repent from being I'm just tough, life's tough, you know, what do you want me to do, give you a cookie. It's time, it's time to bring down the defenses and it's time to get real, it's time to get honest, it's time to get into the psalm. Verse 2, we see here, David prays, let me not be put to shame. What does that even mean? He's saying, I've, I've invested my life in something. I've invested my faith in you, God. I've lived a certain way. I've given myself to something. Please don't let me turn up losing face. So this is how one person's... If you want to go hear a better talk on this, Mary Wilson, Gospel Coali- Women's Gospel Coalition Conference, it's amazing. Mary Wilson, go listen to it. And she says that that this, this notion biblically really when it comes to shame is a, this little phrase is it's a loss of face I lost face we know the phrase saving face well God don't just don't let me be embarrassed in front of the world in front of everybody don't let me be exposed as being a fraud a phony an imposter inadequate and so what is David or who is David afraid will leave him in shame well verse 2 we see there's enemies There's outside actors who can hurt us, who can wound us, who can abuse us, who can exercise power in our lives in a way that's manipulative or in a way that threatens our sense of being. But verse 7, verses 7 and 11 also speak that David is worried that sin might leave him in shame. He asked God to forgive him, to protect him. He asked for God to work in his life in view of his sin, but also, as verse 22, and really the whole psalm speaks to, there's also the threat of shame that just comes from the world. 
is we live in a world that is always telling us, it's kind of the, the fabric of reality, that our identity comes from what we do. And what is David's experience of wrestling with shame? Well, in verse 16, we see that he is lonely and afflicted. Shame can be a very lonely place because oftentimes shame is filled with some type of secrecy. As we'll look at potentially in a minute is, is when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, what, what's their response? To hide. So shame is lonely. But also we see here in verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. What's this talking about is that things that, that are troubles in and of themselves take on a whole new power. They become actually bigger than they are. So again, uh, don't forget to take out the garbage this week like you did last week. Boom. Now, I'm a horrible husband. Right? We say this often, but if you're given a $100 response to a $10 problem, you've got to find out where that extra change is coming from. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. But also we see in verse 18 there's this this guilt that, that comes into play. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive my sin. But one thing we know that is very sure from this psalm and all of the psalms, that's why they teach us how to pray and how to be human before the Lord, is the one thing that David is not doing here is the biggest temptation when it comes to our shame, and that's to hide. That's our gut reaction. I... I feel exposed, I feel vulnerable, I feel I want to be seen, but I don't want to be seen because if people really knew me, they wouldn't really like me. And so now I have to hide, I have to cover, this is what takes place, I've got to put these fig leaves on, I'll figure out how to make myself acceptable to you, but the problem is, it's not me you're accepting, and I know that. I've created this version of myself that will let me be loved and will let me belong. But every night I have to go to bed knowing it's not really me. And it's exhausting. I've got to go around through my life. What does this person need me to be? 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 Because I can't be me. It messes up everything. Shame was not God's design, but in Eden we see shame just rolling in with this force that affects our relationships with everything. We want to hide from God. I mean, I mean, when we're deep in that shame, it's like we start to doubt Him, we start to get bitter at Him, or we're afraid of Him. We're just with our first parents in the bushes. We want to hide from others. We start to distrust everybody. We start to walk around and say, okay, what's your angle? Okay, I wonder what I'll eventually do in this relationship that makes you not like me. I wonder what I, what's eventually going to happen that's going to cause you to abuse me or abandon me. And so I'm going to be close to you, but I got, I'm, going to keep, I'm going to keep my cards close to my chest. I'm not going to play all of them because that is too scary. And then in our relationship with creation, 
a lot of shame. It's not because of our sin or it's not because of how others treat us. It's just like we're born into this fallen, broken world, and so we hate our bodies. Right? You look in the mirror, if you can stomach it, and you're just like, man, I just feel the shame. Why do I look this way? Why, I mean, do you not just ever, I do get ticked off that I just can't eat whatever I want? Why do I got to worry about all this stuff all the time? What is wrong with me? And then we can abuse substances, abusing creation to cover that shame. And then we hide from ourselves, and this may be the most deadly broken relationship when it comes to shame, as we begin to dis- disassociate from the things that have caused us shame. The, the more common way to say that word is just we block stuff out. I don't think about it. And then sometimes you just feel shame for feeling shame. What's wrong with me that this bothers me so bad? What's wrong with me that that happens? What's wrong with me that somebody can't tell me to take out the trash and I don't go into an epic meltdown? Well, that just makes you feel more shame. And we get frozen. We're frozen in things that have happened in our lives or are happening in our lives. And for some of us, things that may happen in our lives. And we're not able to be in the present. We're not able for others to know us. We don't give people the chance to love us. One story that that haunts me when it comes to this was a, a, a person that we met before who grew up in a very abusive home that was just ran off of high octane shame. All of us have dealt with it in some way, but this person was told that they couldn't, when they were a child, could not go use the restroom at night. So you got to stay in your room, boy. If you leave your room, you get beat and verbally abused. And as a young man tests that, that happens. And so what does he learn to do? Well, when I have to use the bathroom, I'm going to have to figure out some way to do it in my bedroom. And he did. And, and that, that shame motivation locked him into that way of thinking. Well, what was odd, though, is that several, many years later in life, as he's staying at a homeless shelter, some of the other folks in the room get up one night and they look around and they see him walking over to pee in the corner of the room. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? Go to the bathroom. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happened? Deep in his soul, he was frozen in this shame that I can't even go out and walk into the hallway to the restroom. He's technically free to go do that, but frozen in his shame. Now that may seem like an extreme example, true story, but this is how shame works. And I'd wager that there's some of you, if not all of us, who have frozen scenes of shame that are working under the floorboards of your heart. So I want to ask you, who or what has froze you? So that now it shapes how you relate, how when people question you or comment or say anything, You just go to this deep place of, I don't matter, I'm unworthy, 
Because if you don't acknowledge this, become aware of it, you're going, you're going to live trapped in a cell where the door is open. How did you learn that you don't measure up? When did you learn you don't really belong? Where were you told you don't have what it takes? Maybe it, maybe it was you that told you that. Maybe it's not all of your life, but so it's like, where are those areas or pockets where you feel those questions arising? Because if you don't deal with this, this shame that could lead us by the Spirit to somewhere goes to a toxic place. Voice of the Heart says, toxic shame leads us to reject our neediness and hide it and our need for mercy. So we are placed in a position to rely on outward performance rather than remaining relationally present as needy and capable individuals. If we make a mistake or our performance doesn't measure up to another's standards, we see ourselves as deserving judgment or rejection. This is, and my troubles are enlarged. Is this is why people who wrestle deep down with shame, even if they don't know it, are super anxious. Because you're just walking around all the time. Am I going to do enough? Am I going to be enough? Or they're super detached. I'm not playing that game anymore. So I'm just not going to have relationships. We all have our shame stories, but we've got to think back not only to our shame stories, but to the statements. If you were called fat by kids at school, the statement might have been, I'm disgusting. If you were the person who called people that, you might now say this to yourself, I'm a horrible person. Someone that was sexually abused by a neighbor may come out with this statement, I'm dirty. Someone who cheated on their spouse may have this statement, I'm an unredeemable loser. If you filed for bankruptcy, I'm a failure. If you were cut from a sports team, I'm a nobody. If you didn't finish college or make the club or the grade, I am stupid. If you lost a race, I am pathetic. If somebody laughed at you at, for, at a certain point when you were enjoying something maybe, I'm a joke. Some, and again, people may not intend these things, but this is what you take from it. At the time, maybe a parent was upset with you, and it may have been ju justifiable, but you walked away from that with the statement, I'm unlovable, my presence makes things worse. And if you were sexually abused by someone, maybe repeatedly, if you didn't participate, they were angry, you may say, my only value is found in the pleasure I can give someone in this way. If you grew up in a church where every week it was just a sermon on God's damnation of sinners, then you may think deep down, God just thinks I'm worthless and is going to damn me if I don't get it together. So what do you say about yourself? How you answer that question is very powerful. What do you say about yourself? Who are your shame dealers? At some point in my life, I became an approval addict. What does an addict do? If, you're, if you know the life of an addict, an addict wakes up every day and they've got to think, how do I get high? 
So my life is organized around a day that says I've got to get this pill or I've got to get this needle. And that's kind of how life goes. And I'm going to use people to get what I need. I'm going to tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to figure it out. Well, guess what? We're probably all in here addicts of something. And if you're an approval addict who's dealing with shame, what that looks like is it's like, who can I do something nice for today? Not out of a heart of love. Hopefully it's mixed. Sometimes out of a heart of love. Hopefully most of the time. Let's not talk about me right now. But, but you're like, it's this high when somebody says, thank you. There's this high when somebody says, like, I see you. Great job. It's, ne- it's just like an addict. It's never enough. You've got ha- to gotta get that hit again. And for some reason, it's just, it, never, it never goes as deep as you think it would. And so how does that work for us? We end up merely surviving, existing. And we start to look on our lives and we're like, oh wow, I just spent a year giving myself to that. I just spent a decade giving myself to that. Sometimes some of us, I've spent my life giving myself to that. I've just existed. I've just scrounged for what I could get from the, through the day. And the enemy then says, yeah, you did it all for nothing. So you are nothing. Shame is powerful. But we can't just humble ourselves to tell the truth about it. We've got to also humble ourselves to accept God's presence in the face of our shame. Hopefully I've not just thoroughly discouraged everybody this morning. I'm just trying to get to where where we're at sometimes. Or maybe you're thinking, you're crazy. (laughs) I don't have any clue what you're talking about. Okay. I'm mainly preaching myself then. But, it takes humility to accept God's presence with us. It really does. It's pride that says, I'm too, I'm too unapproachable by God. It is not a high view of God's holiness and a biblical view of your sinfulness that says, here I am and God can't handle this. That's actually a low view of God's holiness and a low view of God's sovereignty and a low view of God's glory. Because the Bible tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. It's the holiness of God that when Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, that comes near with the coal from the altar and places it on his lips and purifies him to see himself now as one who is sent by God. So what does David do? David is not over here moaning in the corner, rolling around. No, he is crying out to God. Verse 1, he's lifting his soul up to God. Verse 2, he's putting his trust in God. Verses 4 and 5, he's asking God for the way forward. Verse 11, he's appealing to God's glory for the sake of his life. And to what end is he doing this? Verse 9, he focuses on humility. Humility comes into the open. Pride hides in the bushes. Pride says, I'm a special kind of sinner. Pride says, I'm a special kind of victim. Pride says, I'm a special kind of loser. Humility says, God, here I am. 
Did you tell me who I am? Verses 12 through 14 point us to this friendship with God. This is amazing. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. This is is what's amazing is that God offers us friendship with Him. You know, Jesus says, I I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends in John 15. And why does He say, what's the difference between a servant and a friend? He says, I reveal to you the heart of the Father. Jesus models this humility as where I'm going to expose myself. You want to talk about risky, these jokers are just going to fall asleep on him at his hardest time. He lifted himself up vulnerably to God and to man. David here is responding to the call of God from Genesis 3 that rings out over all our lives today. This question, where are you? Where are you? Where are you hiding? God God is not geographically challenged. He knows the answer. He's not coming for your GPS location. He's coming for your heart. Where are you? God is always calling us out of hiding, and some of us have been hiding for a long time, sometimes in the open. God is always calling us out, not to hurt us, but to heal us, not not to condemn us, but to cover us. God is asking us to be vulnerable. And again, not transparent where you just talk about what happened, but vulnerable where you talk about how it made us feel, how it shaped our interpretation of life, how it infects and effects and affects all of our relationships. Shame grows in the dark. What if Adam and Eve would have never came out? What if you don't? Halloween is here, and when, when I was a kid, and maybe still, I won't say that, afraid of haunted houses, I don't want to go in and pay money for somebody to shock me and surprise me and embarrass me. And my imagination is weird and wild, and honestly, sometimes I get lost in what's real and what's not real. Sometimes in real life to this day, did that really happen? Did they really say that? Did I really say that? Did that really happen? So for me, when it comes to a haunted house, it's like just if I could stand in the line, that's a big win, right? If I cannot punk out until the last minute and be like, oh, I got a cold, Dad. Let me go, you know, sit with Mom. The only way that I could even stand in line was not through a bunch of logic. Well, let me talk to you about the science of how this isn't real. Let me tell you that this is all fake. No, I just needed somebody there with me. When I was a kid, I needed my dad to be with me. And when I was older, I need friends to be with me. The only way that I could walk into that vortex of surprise and perceived embarrassment was by having other people with me who could handle it. Other people who had a good grasp on reality. So that when my imagination and my embarrassment went to places that were unbearable, I knew they weren't going to be embarrassed of me. They were not going to abandon me, but they were going to walk with me. Even though they didn't know all that usually, because I wasn't vulnerable enough to share it. Do we have that type of presence in our shame? Yes, the good news is that we have a Father who does all that and more, who walks with us through the haunted house rooms of our life. 
So if back to point one, what are your shame stories and your shame statements? You've you got to walk into those rooms, and that's scary. But the good news is, we don't walk there alone. We go in, as Psalm 25 says, the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is not, here's some, something else to be afraid of, the fear of the Lord is the faith that God is the greatest reality. Like there's nothing to be feared over Him. And if this guy's with me, then I can go there. He's with me. He walks with me. But I've got to vulnerably feel it. I've got to vulnerably tell the truth. I've got to talk to him about it. I've got to find some other people I can talk to about it. Now, you just can't do this with anybody. But you've got to have some trusted friends who you can say, I just, I want to go to some holy ground here with you and I want to talk about some of these frozen scenes and episodes in my life that I feel like I'm still kind of stuck in. And you might want to say, and, I, and this, is, this is what I need from you now. I just need you to listen. And if you're the listener, just be aware. When somebody shares their story to us, you are on holy ground. And you are not God. Listen. Listen. Cry if you need to. Make sure they know you're there. And pray. The Spirit will lead to more, but we've got to be willing first to inhabit that space with one another. And the more that we inhabit that space, then we go to, and I, and I don't know that I like this term a whole lot, or this phrase, is we get to a place where we can have healthy shame. The reason I say maybe I don't like that term is because shame wasn't in the garden, so before sin. But the, the point behind this phrase is I'm now able to recognize and accept the fact that I'm a person who is not always going to do things right, I'm a person who's going to let other people down. I'm a person who's going to deserve critique. I'm a person who's going to be wrong, but that doesn't mean I am wrong. Voice of the Heart says, Healthy shame helps us embrace dependency, which is simply what Jesus means when he says to become like a child. It makes us reach for belonging and significance and an intimacy with others. It allows us to seek connection based upon how we are created. At its most basic level, healthy shame says, I am a needy person. And I need other people to help me make it. It's humility. Again, as C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's saying, I'm not God. My worth comes from God, not myself. Well, that takes a lot of humility. I am needy. I have limitations. I am vulnerable. I hurt other people sometimes. And other people hurt me sometimes. I need God. And as we do that, we grow in this other word, which is attunement. Again, we can say when we're attuned to this reality is, I make mistakes, I sin, and I face suffering, and so do you. 
I don't have all the answers. But guess what? I do have some of the answers. You don't have all the answers. But you have some of the answers. I need you. And you need me. I'm not God and you're not God. We both need God. I've got something to offer this world. But I don't have it all. We get to be right-sized, voice of the heart says. That means we get to be no less or no more than who we are. And when we're in tune to that, then we can really be known and be loved and belong. But can we trust this? And this is our last point that will lead us to the table. Is we have to humble ourselves not only to, to tell the truth about the presence and power of shame in our life and to receive God's presence in our shame, but we've got to humble ourselves to go, trust God's provision for the core of our shame. And we're going to have to trust Him because most of us are trusting in ourselves. You have your own strategy for redeeming yourself from all your troubles. How does David do this? Well, David does this and he can do this because as verse 6 says, he knows God is merciful and loving from of old. God's not just all of a sudden, well, I hope he's going to be merciful this time. I hope, you know, when I bring this out of the closet or under the bed to him, he's going to be merciful this time. No, he's merciful and loving, David says, from of old. He's saying, this is just who he is. It's his character. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's waiting for his people to come home. Verse 7, he knows God is good and instructive. He's not just going to come and listen to us, but he's going to lead us. He's going to forgive us, verse 13. He's going to keep his promises, verse 15. He's going to protect us. Verse 22, he is able to redeem Israel. He is able to redeem his people from all their troubles. So the question is, who is the pursuer for the one in shame? It's not first of all David. It's not first of all Adam. And it's not first of all us. It's God. We're the ones hiding and God is the one seeking. And He no, in no greater way shows us this seeking heart that comes to redeem us than through the person of His Son, Jesus. Lepers had to walk around in Jesus' day, and as they entered an area, they had to shout, Unclean! Unclean! So I want to warn everybody, somebody that's untouchable is about to come near. Can you imagine living like that? Some of you can. That's how you live. In your own way. Can you imagine living a life where nobody ever touches you? Unless maybe they throw a rock at you to see a body part fall off because it's funny. And what does Jesus do? You've got to love Him. He goes up and touches them. He touches the unclean. The outcast, the one that doesn't belong, the one who has to live with this stain and this brokenness, this disgrace that they carry. And Jesus comes up and He puts His hands on them. And when Jesus touches the unclean, He doesn't become unclean. They become clean. 
He's the one who, when a, a, a prostitute gets down unashamedly and lets her hair down and washes his feet, I mean, wouldn't this have been scandalous? Kisses his feet like, what is going on, Jesus? Don't you know healthy boundaries? What's going on, Jesus? Don't you know who it is you're associating with? Don't you know how that looks? And Jesus just lets it happen and lets everybody be scandalized and everybody be shocked. And then he looks at her in the, in the presence of this self-righteous Pharisee who thinks they have it all together and they, they can just walk around in public like they, they are it. And he says it's this woman whose sins are forgiven. It's the one who goes to Matthew's table and says, Matthew, I don't want... I, I want you to go get all, all your peeps, all your people. I want them here. I want the outcasts. I want those who don't think they belong, who've been written off by God's people or who have written off God's people. And I want to show them one who comes to heal the sick, not just to make the well feel better about themselves. And then he goes to the cross. And if we can go to this next verse, in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 2, notice, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, notice, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What is going on here? Well, first off, he endured the cross. The cross was not just a way to kill people. They could have just killed somebody in, a, in the alleyway. The cross was death by shame publicly humiliate you in front of your family, your friends, and your city. Strip you naked, slap you, mock you, spit on you, beat you. And Jesus, they just went the extra mile. We're going to put this crown of thorns on you, this robe on you. We're going to parade you down the street with the cross. You're going to be hung naked on a cross, and then we're going to put over you this sign that just mocks you. King of the Jews. What was that sign saying? God let you be put to shame. This is, this is what David was afraid was going to happen. I would trust God and I'd be hanging naked in front of everybody. But he didn't only just die with that shame upon him physically, but more than that, the scriptures tell us that he took on the shame of the world. He became unrighteousness, we read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So all that shame you feel because of your sin, Jesus absorbed it. Not just sin, but suffering. All the evil of a cursed world and the wounds and the brokenness. Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. All the demonic activities that come against us. Colossians 2 says that as he hung there on the cross, he put those enemies to shame. And when it says here that he despised the shame, the, the, the Greek word, kataphroneo, behind this, he disesteemed it. That is, he did not count it. He said, that's a lot, but it's nothing compared to this. And what? The joy that's set before him? What's the joy set before him he was willing to bear such humiliation and shame for? You. The glory of God through the redemption of sinful humanity. Do we just get up every morning and remind ourselves of that? 
later in Hebrews or earlier, he says, you know what? I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. Sisters, I'm not ashamed of you. Other people might be, but I'm not. Look to the cross. And where is he seated? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In a, in a shame and honor ancient Near Eastern culture, this would have been the highlight. We sometimes don't get there because of our Western context. But this would have been the crescendo, not, not, not the, the cross part, although that was it. But the, the climax is now this person who is at such a place of dishonor is now seated in a place of honor for all to see. Next verse. Next slide. Oh, we just never have enough time. The gospel's too good. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now where are we seated? And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now walk that through all the rooms of your shame. You have been seated in the place of highest honor with Jesus. He bore our shame and He lifted us up into His glory. This is why we can have the courage to lay our fig leaf coverings for shame and idols down. This is why we can have the courage to follow Jesus into the frozen scenes even as adults. And say, you know, I, I didn't know this before, but now I know who I am. I know who Jesus has made me to be. I know who God says that I am. I know I'm loved. I know I belong. And now you can just enjoy Him and joy in you. Have you ever been caught doing something and somebody's disappointed at you? Guess what you're going to catch God doing? Rejoicing over you. Like, you don't need to make any vows right now. You don't even need to make any resolutions. You just need to do what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. You just need to put your eyes on Jesus and enjoy Him, enjoy in you. And that sounds so scandalous, but that's the gospel. That through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been made righteous. You are pure. You are covered. You are clean. You are not condemned, and you will never be condemned. But you're going to have to be humble to receive that. To constantly accept what you don't deserve. To constantly accept that you will never be able to cover yourself enough. That Jesus can. And He's calling you come and be clean. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. And we pray now as we come to the table that You would help us to taste and see that You are good. We pray, God, that we would experience you in the ways we need forgiveness, the ways we need healing, the ways we need deliverance. That you would lead us, spirit, out of hiding and into the hope of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.